This is episode number 267 with founder and CEO at Verta.ai, Manasi Vartak. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by our very own data science conference, Data Science Go 2019. There are plenty of data science conferences out there. Data Science Go is not your ordinary data science event. This is a conference dedicated to career advancement. We have three days of immersive talks, panels, and training sessions designed to teach, inspire, and guide you. There's three separate uh, career tracks involved. So whether you're a beginner, a practitioner, or a manager, you can find a career track for you and select the right talks to advance your career. We're expecting 40 speakers, that's 40 speakers to join us for Data Science Go 2019. And just to give you a taste of what to expect, here are some of the speakers that we had in the previous years. Creator of Makeover Monday, Andy Kriebel. AI thought leader, Ben Taylor. Data science influencer, Randy Lau. Data science mentor, Kristen Kerrer. Founder of Visual Cinnamon, Nadi Bremer technology futurist Publis Holman, and many, many more. Uh, this year, we will have over 800 attendees from beginners to data scientists to managers and leaders. So there will be plenty of networking opportunities with our attendees and speakers, and you don't want to miss out on that. That's the best way to grow your data science network and grow your career. And as a bonus, there will be a track for executives. So if you're executive listening to this, Check this out. Last year at Data Science Go X, which is our special track for executives, we had key business decision makers from Ellie Mae, Levi Strauss, Dell, Red Bull, and more. So whether you're a beginner, practitioner, manager, or executive, Data Science Go is for you. Data Science Go is happening on the 27th, 28th, 29th of September 2019 in San Diego. Don't miss out. You can get your tickets at www.datasciencego.com. I would personally love to see you there, network with you, and help inspire your career or progress your business into the space of data science. Once again, the website is www.datasciencego.com, and I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And today, you're in for a treat. We've got such a fun and an energetic episode coming up for you. So I just got off the phone with Manasi Bartak, who is the founder and CEO of Verta.ai, a company which has developed a unique tool for data science, and it's around deploying your models and versioning them, developing them, keeping track of them, maintaining them. So it's a really cool new thing that uh, hasn't existed before in data science, and you'll learn all about it in this podcast. Plus, this podcast is full of really interesting insights. So we'll talk about model tracking and versioning and uh, maintenance and what Verta.ai is. And in fact, Manasi will share a special code with you where you can join the beta testing absolutely free. 
if you're listening to this podcast, which was very cool of her. Uh, also, you will learn about data science maturity and what it is, what it means. Uh, we talked about the three areas where top tier data science teams are investing into and in the space of data science. And you definitely want to know those if you're part of a, t- a data science team or you want to be in a top tier data science team. Um, we'll, we also talked about why there will be a machine learning boom, a machine learning revolution in the next three years. Definitely a very cool discussion um, and something that is going to impact all of us. So that was very, some very useful insights there. And finally, you'll also find out on about what you can do to prepare for this future, for this incredibly different and fast paced future that is rapidly approaching is going to disrupt everything we do. What you can do for your career, for your business as a data scientist to prepare for that. On that note, there's not much else to say. Amazing podcast coming up. Can't wait for you to check it out. Without further ado, I bring to you founder and CEO at Verta.ai, Manasi Vartek. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Today, I've got a super exciting guest on the show with me, Manasi Vartek, calling in from Palo Alto. Manasi, how are you going today? I'm well. How are you? Thank you for having me. <laughs> very well and very excited to have you on the show. How's the weather in Palo Alto? It's uh, getting into summer slowly. Warm and sunny as always. Yeah, you mentioned like it gets up to 90 degrees, which is about 30 in Celsius. That's that's pretty hot. Like, do you, What do you do in those days? Um, usually a lot of the buildings are, um, are air conditioned. I actually like it pretty warm. Um, so I hang out outside a bunch. Interesting. Interesting. Like I find for me out of warm and cold, like I do, uh, like the warm, but in the cold, my, like, I think better, like I think faster, <laughs> I think. Do you have that? Not really. Um, so I grew up in a pretty warm place and then I lived in a pretty cold place. So I think uh, either one works, honestly. Um, I think I'm happier when it's warmer outside. Okay. All right. Gotcha. gotcha. So you've traveled quite a bit around the world. Now. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, and why, why Palo Alto then? Um, so we are, I moved to California after I graduated um, from MIT. And if you're starting a company in data science or machine learning, um, California and in particular Silicon Valley is kind of the place to be. Um, so ended up moving here and um, we're working out of our investor's office right now, which is in Palo Alto. Gotcha. Is, is it, was it a long time ago that you moved to Palo Alto? Um, not really. About I think it's been about a year, nine months to a year now. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, I was at MIT in uh, 2013. Not that I like studied there. <laughs> I sat in on one lecture, but oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. But uh, whoa, what what I remember was uh, the Infinity Corridor. That was pretty cool. Yes, the yeah. Infinity Corridor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like one of those that I I didn't understand the name at first, but like you have to walk for, through it for ages. Is that why it's called Infinity Corridor? Um. Pretty much. I think there might be, there's also interesting things that happen there um, at a particular day of the year. Um, the light gets aligned in such a way that the corridor becomes super bright. There's like a whole, um, there's a whole story about it on the internet that you guys should read up. 
for me, what is really cool about the Infinite Corridor is as you're walking through there, you're learning about everything that the students at the school do, whether it's extracurricular activities, whether it's student government, research. And the first time I walked through there, um, the energy and the excitement really drew me. And I was like, this sounds awesome. This is a place that I want to learn more about. Nice. nice. What, what, but what do you mean you learn about these things that they're learning there? Um, so as you walk through the Infinite Corridor, both sides have posters on the walls. Um, and these are posters about events happening that day. There might be some like political event going on that someone wants to learn about. Or there might be dance classes. Um, student government is a big thing. Um, there's also research labs uh, that are on the Infinite Corridor. So you learn about that. You see in a very short time span all of the amazing things that happen at MIT. And so that was one of my favorite parts of campus. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And how how was it in general staying at MIT? Because, you know, like we hear about MIT a lot in, you know, movies and shows and right. everything. Like it sounds like this really hardcore yet magical place. So tell us a bit about that. What is life at MIT like and studying there? Um, I loved it. Um, I miss it every day mm. now that I've graduated. Um, I think the best part, of MIT from my perspective was two things. One is the people that you end up working with or interacting with. Um, they're some of the smartest and nicest people. They're more than happy to help you out with something to teach you or you can collaborate on a particular project. Um, so the people I think are the primary, the secondary is the kinds of resources that you might be able to get at MIT. Mm. Um, I think it's very hard to get them elsewhere, whether that's, you know, access to the particular kinds of compute resources to run experiments, or um, you get to work on the most cutting edge problems um, of the day. And I think that's very unique. And you get a lot of freedom to explore both your interests as well as problems that are important in the broader world. Wow. Wow. Amazing. It's super fun. I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you actually did, uh, you did, did you do just your PhD there or you did uh, like your full studies there? Um, I did my master's and PhD okay. there. Gotcha. So it's a two plus four year program. Yeah. Uh, how was doing a PhD at MIT? Was it challenging? Um, I think it was a PhD is a long haul anywhere. anywhere. Um, I really enjoyed my time there. It was it's challenging in terms of you're always pushed to learn new things, publish papers, but you learn so much about yourself as well as your field mm -hmm. um, that I can't recommend it enough. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And what I find very interesting about your story is that you took your PhD project and turned it into a business. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And that um, is fascinating. Like, I, I don't know many people who actually do that. And like, it gives you, I think, right? gives you a massive head start. You know, <laughs> you know, your field inside out. So tell us, how, how did you pick that project in the first place? Did you know it was going to turn into a business eventually? Or, you know, like, what was driving your decision? Right. Um, not really. Um, I didn't know it would turn into a business at all. Um, so, bit of background, my undergrad was in math and computer science. Um, I worked for a bit and then decided to come back to do my PhD on in the area of uh, databases. So like big data was catching on at that point. And uh, because I had this mixed background of software plus 
math or applied math. Um, I wanted to do something with data where I was helping people understand their data better, operate on it better and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, and I ended up working on a few different projects, like over the course of a PhD, you'll work on say uh, three, uh, pretty large chunks of work. Um, my previous, my initial work was on automated data visualization. How do you, uh, given a question, can you identify the graphs that would help answer that question instantly? Mm -hmm. And then can you generate those graphs in an efficient manner and so on? Um, It's called CDB in case anyone's interested, there's a paper out there. So while that was interesting- C as in uh, C with your um, eyes, S-E-E, right? Exactly, yeah, Mm -hmm. S-E-E-D-B. And it's a system that will uh, automatically find charts that can answer a particular question you ask. Awesome. Sounds sounds like an exciting problem. That's uh, it's very art. much so. Yeah, it's a common issue. Like which chart do I pick? And you know, you experiment if that if it can be done automatically. That's really cool. And mm-hmm. we'll we'll put a link to the paper in the show notes if anybody's interested. Sure, that sounds great. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah. So that was the early work, and around that time, um, a I wanted to do more math and theory because uh, I was missing that. Also, machine learning. One with of the, the whole... few people I know who misses math after graduating. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> um, it's oh, yeah. super fun. Like, um, I think it takes a while to get into it. But Which then part of math? Um, so I used to do a bunch of both graph theory as well as uh, linear algebra, which the linear algebra part played in well for machine learning. Uh, because there is a lot of matrices and uh, matrix operations that you do in ML. So that helped me there for sure. Yeah, wow. That's, um, so th- those are the, the two parts of math that like, you were best at when you were studying? Um, so I double major. So like I was doing a bunch of software too, but those were the ones that I enjoyed and I remember <laughs> the most. Um, I don't quite remember how I did in my classes, so can't say. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite one was set theory. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just mm-hmm. loved it. Like got, got so into it and, you know, all those, um, uh, different levels of, uh, continuums that you can have and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> that was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I so, think math is great. Yeah. Okay. So what happened next? So you did CDB and right. like um, that, and you finished that, or right, or right. you decided to change? Uh, so CDB was great, and then, um, yeah, I wanted to do more uh, math. I wanted to do more ML, um, and so I ended up switching my focus a little bit to building again tools, but for machine learning in particular. And that was about the time when the big papers in deep learning were coming out, you know, the AlexNet uh, papers, we were seeing TensorFlow, um, deep learning and machine learning was the hottest thing. Um, it still continues to be, but that was just like the initial stages um, of that cycle. And I got super interested in like, how do people build their models? Um, and what is their workflow like? Can we build some tools around there so that they could do their job more efficiently or more uh, productively. For example, um, for most listeners who have done data science, um, modeling is a very iterative process. Uh, You'll build hundreds of models before you identify one that works. Mm -hmm. However, there's no good way to track them. Um, And I was at Twitter uh, where I used to work on their feed ranking team uh, where we ended up doing a hyperparameter search. We 
I don't know, train multiple hundreds of models. And it was difficult for me to look back and see, well, what all have I tested? Um, my best solution there was to have a folder structure that would try to mimic my experimentation. <laughs> and at scale, that's just inadequate or you know, you end up losing a lot of work that way or just re recreating work that was already uh, completed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very, yeah, that's very true. Okay, so there, there wasn't a tool at the time that would mm -hmm. uh, facilitate that yeah. tracking. Yeah, exactly. Facilitate that tracking. And once you get beyond tracking, you also realize that model reproducibility is a pretty big issue. Mm -hmm. It goes beyond just tracking because um, if you think about what a model is, a model is the data that you trained on, any pre-processing that you applied to the data, the particular model specification, including architecture, hyperparameters, um, any random seeds too. You want to capture mm -hmm. all of the sources of variation so that you can reproduce that model as is. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up building the system called ModelDB, which is a versioning system for models, and it will help you track all of these pieces um, that will help you recreate a model at a future time. Okay, now wait, wait a second. The people, mm -hmm. uh, like if I'm listening to this, like I know the answer because we chatted about this before the podcast, but mm -hmm. the people listening to this, my first thing popping the mi into their minds is like, what about GitHub? You know, like GitHub tracks your code and progress. Like, how come that's not a good enough yeah. system? Absolutely. I think Git is great for code. Um, there are two things that you don't get with uh, Git-based versioning. The first one is how do you keep track of your data? A lot of times, either you're reading from a particular file, um, and then you change that file in some way, or you move it, and then you have no idea what data it was trained on. Mm -hmm. If you're reading from HDFS, you need to store you know, what directory, or if you're querying a database, then you need to keep track of the query. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one piece which, you know, by definition, sort of is GitHub is great for code. But once you start trying to track the data, you need to augment the Git-like versioning system with data. Mm -hmm. The second piece that comes up is um, if you look at a plain Python script, it's hard to pick out the sources of variation there. So if you're doing a hyperparameter search over say 20 combinations of hyperparameters, they're gonna be in the same file that's checked into Git. You're not gonna know what particular variation of those hyperparameters led to the best model. Hmm. So that's where you need a way to extract uh, the pieces from your code that lead to variations in your model and track them separately. Okay, so and there's the like, final piece I would say there's no, sorry, there's no, there's no like ahead. history of the hyperparameter parameter tuning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gotcha. exactly. Um, and the final one is also the environment, uh, particularly because a lot of data science is in Python, where you're using Pandas version ABC or, you know, DEF, mm -hmm. and that will end up making a big difference on whether you can reproduce your model. Okay, very, very interesting. All right, so you, you saw this problem or this um, gap uh, in the world of data science and modeling and you decided to research it further and so your research because like research that most people are familiar with and myself included is like you're mm. um, I don't know like doing some tests finding things out your research was, sounds like was more mm -hmm. centered around developing a tool a product to solve a, 
a problem. Is that right? Yeah. So I was actually in the databases group at MIT, and we're all about building systems that others can use. Mm. Um, so column stores, there's something called Vertica that um, listeners might be aware of that came out of my lab. There is also a um, GPU-based visualization company that also came out of mm. the same research group. So we're very hands-on. We're focused on building systems, um, which is not to say that I didn't do the experimentation type of research. Um, all of the papers that we wrote were, even when you build a system, there are a lot of knobs that you can tune. And then the thing that you're measuring is how much did a query performance change or can I use my resources more effectively if I change the architecture of my system? Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of experiments that we ran um, a whole bunch. Okay, gotcha. Um, but the advantage that you get is that you can start a business with uh -huh. that system. Um, so yeah, tell, how yeah, did that happen? Yeah. Like you, you <laughs> finished your PhD and you're like, all right, now this is going to be my, like I'm just going to continue and uh, right, turn, right. turn this into a problem. Um, yeah. Um, so what happened was that we released Model DB, which is a system I'm, uh, I was describing earlier. So let me recap. Yeah. Um, with a model, a model version consists of a few different things. It consists of your data version, consists of your code version, hyperparameter settings, or any other settings that cause variability, and then your environment. Um, and when I started all this research, there wasn't a discipline around how do we track that information in an effective manner. Mm -hmm. So we ended up building a system called ModelDB, which was released open source, and its whole purpose is to help version and reproduce models. Mm -hmm. So this is the uh, this is the open source product um, that got adopted at a whole bunch of places, including banks um, and Fortune 500 companies, where data scientists ended up using it to version their models, keep audit trails also just to track all of their hyperparameter searches. Mm -hmm. And that adoption gave a pretty uh, convincing signal to us that there was a need for a product that would solve this exact problem. And so I ended up starting Verda AI, where we build tools such as ModelDB, as well as others that um, I'm sure we'll touch upon in this podcast, mm -hmm. that help optimize the process of modeling itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Um... How's that been going for you? So you, the, you've been running this business for how long now? Um, so I've been running the business for about six months now. Uh, we're pretty early in um, mm -hmm. and we actually have a beta that I'm happy for uh, any of the listeners to try out too. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that. Please please share that. Like uh, guys, girls listening, um, Ma Manasi has a very cool... Um, unique offer for listeners of this podcast Mansi, if you don't mind sharing it would be awesome yeah absolutely so like i mentioned before we build a tool for versioning models and we would love to open it up to any listeners of the podcast we're currently in a closed beta but if you're interested if you go to www.verda.ai there's a little bot at the bottom um, where you can get a code and if you mention that you listen to the sds podcast we'll make sure that you're on the top of the list for that code. Um, we would love to have people try it out and provide their feedback. Nice. Very cool. So um, the website, guys, is verta.ai, verta.ai, and uh, this is absolutely free, right, Mansi? Yep, that's right. Awesome. Very cool. So you've got the beta now. When do you think uh, you're going to 
uh, like, do you have a deadline when you want to launch this thing? Um, so it's already launched in that we're um, in customer sites right now, uh, mm -hmm. but it's beta because we're constantly iterating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think the Silicon Valley um, mantra, I guess, is like every day is day zero. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to get it right before we make it generally available. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Um, so, so how was this um, transition from doing PhD work? to starting mm -hmm. a business? Like what, what were some of the challenges along the way there? Um, I think they're very different. <laughs> um, and I've been learning about it as I go as well. Um, when you're doing research, I think you consider a problem or even when you're you know, a data scientist at a company, you're looking at a problem for us from a single lens, which is yours. You, know, you are a technical person who's trying to solve a hard technical problem. However, once you switch into the business mode, per se, um, you need to think about it holistically, which is what is the business problem that the user is going to solve? Um, what is their horizon for solving this problem? Do they have the resources, whether that's monetary resources or human resources to um, use your solution? And most importantly, if everything goes well, then what is the best outcome that you can promise this user? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to think about um, a product in terms of how does that fit into a user's or a customer's workflow and how can you build it as well as provide it to them in a way that it's easy to adopt and make their own. Okay. And what about uh, building a team around this? I'm assuming you're not yeah. doing this by yourself. Yep, yep. Um, we are a team of five right now. Mm. Um, and. For those who live in California, you know that recruiting can be quite hard. Um, we are uh, we're pretty fortunate in that um, this is an area where a lot of folks are excited to learn about ML. A lot of engineers are excited to work in this space. Mm -hmm. And our previous um, work on ModelDB and other research projects in that area gave us sort of the credibility where uh, folks would trust us um, to work with us, although we are pretty early stage. Yeah, it makes sense. Like you have not just a, a proof of concept, you have something that <laughs> four years of research has gone into or years of research has yeah. gone into and something that companies like Fortune 500 companies, as you mentioned, are, are already using. And what, yep. what are the evidences needed for somebody to see that this is, a, this is going to be big? This is awesome. We hope so. We yeah. hope so. That's that's very cool. Okay, and so um, why would you say that um, you know companies jumped on this? Usually, it's quite hard to get mm -hmm. these kind of products into mm -hmm. businesses, especially as at early stages. Like, where where do you think um, these organizations see the most value for them? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I think we're going through this interesting shift in data science right now, where um, we have been focusing on data science in what I think of as a static sense, where we're building these models maybe on our laptops. We might be writing papers about them or creating a PowerPoint that shows you know, trends that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. But if you look at uh, the best uses of ML or data science, um, you know, whether it's Twitter or Google or Uber, the most return on investment for data science comes from actually integrating data science into products, 
whether it's, you know, better recommendations, better uh, notifications or automated loan approvals um, or testing how well you're driving. All of that comes to fruition only when you can take a model and then deploy it into production and service it in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. So as you go into production ML, you need a host of tools that will enable that jump from research to production. Mm-hmm. And we're at that uh, we're at that juncture now, and a lot of companies are realizing that hey, I haven't thought about this problem. I don't know how to go through the shift um, effectively and efficiently. Mm-hmm. And that's where we come in as Berta, where we have a platform that's tailored for that purpose, and we can get them up and running in just a matter of days. Mm, okay, I gotcha. So basically that they can see the value that they invest into this uh, efficiency, yeah. effectiveness, mm-hmm. and then they'll get the return on investment. So it's, it's a no-brainer. Yes, um, although the other thing that we found is um, it also depends on the data science maturity of an organization. Um, If an organization is ready to deploy a model or has already deployed one or two models, they have felt the pain um, of all the challenges involved in production ML. Mm. And so we find that those companies are the ones that immediately get our value proposition and want to try out our product. Yeah, they can relate better to, to mm-hmm. it, right? They've already had that problem. Exactly. Okay, okay, very cool. What, what um, Apart from how many models the company has deployed, what else goes into the definition, in your definition of data science maturity? Oh, yeah. Um, I think this might be, this is my take on it, clearly. Um, I think a mature data science org or like what I've seen a lot of top data science teams do is getting good processes around data science. And this is partly the reason why um, I ended up starting Verda. When you think about what differentiates the Googles and Ubers from the rest of the world is not just data. um, It's also that they have good infrastructure and good processes Mm -hmm. around building and deploying these models. So, for example, um, say a insurance company has tons and tons of data and they're doing data science already. Um, so they completely have the capacity to be as, um, you know, as good as Uber or Google in pushing out ML. I think the only thing that's missing from that equation right now is dependable infrastructure and ways to quickly integrate ML into every product that they have. Mm. Yeah, true. And so, mm-hmm. Google, most like a lot of Google's work is publicly available. Like you can just go and download those research papers and copy those mm-hmm. models. But yeah, you're right. There's this other barrier. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the shift as well that comes with going from offline to online is data science is um, becoming more software oriented too. So like the most effective uh, use of data science that I've seen integrate some model that is super complex or super interesting into a real product. Um, And like, if there was one thing I would say to the listeners is like, I think data scientists are going to have to pick up software sort of best practices Mm -hmm. quickly um, so that their, their work can have the best and largest impact. Okay. Very, very cool. And so um, you, one of the topics you suggested for this um, chat was, um, uh, the top three areas where top tier data science teams are investing into. And I'm assuming we've already covered a couple of them. Maybe mm-hmm. you could summarize that and add if we've missed anything. 
Absolutely. So I think the three things that top data science teams are doing, I would say, are uh, the following. The first one and the one that I believe in the most kind of is having better tooling that goes with modeling. So like, how do you version your models? How do you deploy them? How do you bring the best software engineering practices into the modeling process? So that's the first. Mm -hmm. The second is um, getting data into the right format um, and integrating the data sources, because at the end of the day, a model is nothing if there is no data backing it. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a pretty hard problem. We've been trying to solve that for a while. Yeah. So investing there is going to pay dividends. Um, and then the third one is getting product buy-in. So whatever your model is that you're building, there is a product or business process where it's going to be integrated. So getting buy-in from that particular business stakeholder, that product manager, and understanding what success means in their case. Does it mean like they want to increase the daily active user somewhere, they wanna get more revenue and really tailoring your metrics to that. Um, I think with tools, data and product buy-in, we can go a long way. Interesting, so um, we'll get back to the, the data part just now and, and understand how you can, or a team can invest into tools and buy a tool, uh, invest into getting your data in the right format, spend some time, energy, effort, hire some people to get your data in the right format, or maybe buy that data or do something with it. But what do you mean when you say that teams invest into getting product buy-in? What, what does investing into product buy-in mean? I think that investment is more of a human capital investment. Uh, let me give you an example. So suppose you are a bank and you want to um, you want to produce a model that would recommend financial products to your financial advisor. So like I'm a financial advisor, a client comes in and I want to recommend to them the best products that we have. In that case, as a data science team, my consumer of the model is this financial advisor. Mm -hmm. So you need their buy-in and you need to understand what it's going to take for them to completely trust and use your product. Mm -hmm. That might mean that your model needs to come with some sort of explainability. It might mean that they need to see some data on back testing mm -hmm. that demonstrates that your model works as expected. Mm -hmm. And then you might also need to work with the actual product teams to show the results of your model in a meaningful fashion. Mm, okay. So, so yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not like an external investment of you know, funds. It's more of an mm -hmm. investment of time and care to make sure that it's, you're not just like dumping this model onto, onto the department, that you actually you spent the right um, amount of time figuring out yep. what they actually they want, you know, asking the right questions, presenting in the right way. And, uh, you know, like the whole s more like soft skills associated with yes. data science. A hundred thousand percent, I would say, because uh, your model um, in this particular case is going to be used by another person on your team or another team. And you want to make sure that they actually understand what your model is doing and they're going to trust whatever you're producing. Okay, understood. And uh, let's get back to the number two then, um, mm -hmm. getting the data in the right format. So how do top tier data science uh, teams invest into that? Um, so I can give a few examples. I think everyone's uh, data setup is very different. Yeah. Um, so for example, Twitter, it's well documented that um, 
the data processing is performed via something called scalding. And um, the data engineers there work very hard on writing scalding jobs or pipelines that are reproducible so that whatever, if a data science team needs some sort of data, then they can write the jobs that will create the data in a timely fashion. It will be available to the data scientists when they want to query it offline and online. Um, there's also ways to say visualize the data quickly, uh, make sure you can run some quality checks on it and so on. Mm -hmm. So that whole infrastructure that helps with getting the data into the right um, input format so that the model can consume it. Okay, how does a more um, conventional organization, mm -hmm. uh, not like a tech right. giant, but a more conventional organization with mm -hmm. a relational database, but with um, the usual problems of you know missing data, corrupt data, incorrect mm -hmm. data, how, mm -hmm. and various dispersed data sources. How do yeah. they? Yeah, how do they go about this problem of getting their um, data in check? It's very bespoke. Right now, uh, there are a few like data integration providers out there, and maybe those sorts of tools are being used. Um, the other one, in a lot of cases, is that there's a data engineer who's writing giant SQL queries um, that are going to create dumps of this data. Mm -hmm. um, and then the data scientist is going to spend a whole lot of time cleaning them up mm -hmm. and then producing versions of that data. Yeah. Um, that are, you know, my clean one, clean two, clean <laughs> with features, all of that fun stuff. Yeah. The key part there is we still need to track how that data is getting transformed throughout these stages uh, because we're going to have to reproduce that. Mm -hmm. The next time that we build a similar model or that model has to get deployed into a real product, mm -hmm. we have to apply that transformation to live data. Mm -hmm. So if we don't know how we did it the first time around, we're not going to be able to reproduce it at all. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's where um, your tool comes in, right? When the people Partly, actually... yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. Um, and to be clear, I think that's a very bespoke um, process in mm -hmm. most um, organizations. And the one sort of takeaway I have there is um, if you can specify your data transformations in a declarative manner, which is I'm taking this particular data set as input, this is what I'm applying to it. This is my output. Once you have it in that declarative fashion, then it's way easier to do the same thing over and over again versus if it's something that's ad hoc and not documented. And that's what we're hoping to make simpler with our product. Yeah, I completely agree. So when you're when you're experimenting with uh, you know doing some data exploration, like you do things ad hoc, but then once you're actually developing a model, you i find and like i worked at deloitte for two years and mm -hmm. they, they they drill it into your head that <laughs> it has to be documented like there's so many um in the sops like standard operating procedures there's so many mm -hmm. checks and so many um quality assurance um steps that you have to be taken for instance one thing that um really helps and this is something that our listeners have seen in the Data Science A to Z course is uh, mm -hmm. using SSIS for these types of things. It, mm. It's painful. It takes time to set up these, um, you know, like upload scripts. But once they're set up, you just click one button and, you know, your data gets re-uploaded and, you know, you have all those um, data cleansing checks in, in place as well. And if you need to change anything, it's all documented. So 
that's oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a like you know there are some tools out there that are really cool mm-hmm. for using that. Yep. It's just a matter of having that discipline and doing it because it might seem faster to you know just do it ad hoc now and oh you know like let's get the result. But mm-hmm. guaranteed, if you're going to be using this model for like at least two or three months, you're mm-hmm. going to forget what you did. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. Um, and I would say that if you're doing that in a consistent manner, you're way ahead of the game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think any data scientist who's doing that regularly will be highly valued. Very cool. Yeah, true. totally true. So the other thing I wanted to ask you is uh, with, um, sorry, Verta, with Verta.ai, mm-hmm. so your software, your solution, um, mm-hmm. does it allow for model maintenance so that's that's a ma- massive problem that a lot of mm. data scientists um don't kind of incur until mm. a much later stage so you can be like good at data science you're good at developing models and so on but then one point in time once you deploy a model successfully mm. and it stays you're gonna hit that um problem of all right what i do with it six months 12 months later 18 months i was in an organization once where they deployed a model, external consultants came in, deployed a model. No, this is not Deloitte, some other organization <laughs> came in, uh, deployed a model, very cool model. It was doing, you know, I don't know, 70% accuracy or something like that um, for customer churn or, or some other customer related um, mm-hmm. segmentation. And then 18 months later, so the consultant left, and then 18 months later, the same model is working. It's in the production, in production. Um, it's running every night, it's producing results, but nobody's looking at it. Like the organization didn't have Mm -hmm. a data science team. So nobody's Mm -hmm. looking at it. And once we actually went in and looked at it, like I I had a look at the model, like (laughs) with with one of my mentors, it like its accuracy was like 48%. So it was better to flip a coin than to use that model. So model deterioration Uh, is a big thing. How how, how does uh, Verta fit in there? Absolutely. Um, we think that's super, super important. So once a model is deployed into production, it's a sort of a real living thing. Um, it's going to take in new inputs and it's going to produce new outputs. Um, and if your data that you're feeding to the model no longer looks like the data that it was trained on, it's going to start producing pretty bad results. Mm-hmm. And that's called concept drift, data drift, um, model decay, a lot of things. So in our system, we actually provide model monitoring out of the box. Mm-hmm. So if you version your model using um, Verda and then you deploy it using Verda, we start tracking the data that your system is getting. Um, if you log the training data when you version the model, then we know what the training distributions are that Ooh. you were expecting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so when you say you track uh, the data, it's not just like the the columns and rows and names of the columns, for instance, like the name, like the format of the data might be the same, but you're actually tracking the distributions of the values, which is what, yes. like, so for instance, if there's a shift in uh, the audience, like, like their the age changes or their preferences change or their, I don't know, like um, time of the year changes and, and things happen to the customers or whatever, you'll mm-hmm. see that in the distributions. Exactly, exactly. Um, because we know what the training distribution is like, and at test time, we can compare whether the test distribution is similar to the train, and if it's not, then we can set an alarm saying, hey, there seems to be something off. 
um, someone needs to take a look at it. So mm-hmm. in your previous example, the system would have alerted way before uh, <laughs> that accuracy fell. Yeah. Because um, these models, you know, churn in data science is very common. Someone might move to another company, but that model needs to live on beyond their tenure at that company. That's where the maintenance and monitoring really becomes key, where we're keeping a check on, all right, this is working as expected. It's working as expected. Suddenly something's weird. We're going to alert the right person. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> oh, my God. So we have a guest uh, on the show sometimes. He's been on the show mm-hmm. twice, Mike Segala. He's actually from Boston as well. Um, nice. MIT is in Boston. Um, so mm-hmm. and uh, he says that from this podcast, he like a lot of very like large scale organizations have contacted him to do consulting work. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying this to all those CEOs and directors of data science from those organizations (laughs) listening right now. You guys, you ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) should really consider Verita.ai. Like that is amazing. Like if I, if you can get alerted when your model is deteriorating, how much cost is that going to save you from like doing those checks yourself or having data? What a genius idea, huh? Like how? Like, I, I guess for you, it was natural, like being in this space, it was like an essential thing. Like, why why hasn't anybody come up? And the question, like, why hasn't anybody before you come up with this? Have you ever thought of that? Um, so data drift is pretty reasonably studied in the literature. So mm. like from a research perspective, you're just computing uh, distances between distributions. So the statisticians are going to say, well, it's obvious. Uh, just take a distributional test. Um I think what's missing again, uh, not to go back to the same point, is the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Someone needs to be tracking your training data. Someone needs to be computing these distributions. And then there needs to be another piece that's going to be watching your model. Mm-hmm. Um, and if a data science team were to write custom code to do all of that, it would be a super hard and not re- you cannot do that over and over again. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's more about, is it easy for someone to implement this? Um, that's, I think, the biggest question. And the other piece is also that not as many people are putting models into production yet. But mm-hmm. in the next couple of years, we're going to see an explosion in the need of um, in the need for such kind of tools. Very interesting view. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think that the, this is going to explode. But Tell us, like, why, why, why now? What's mm-hmm. what's changed? Absolutely, I think we are. There are two things that have changed. Um, the first one is about until about 2013, 2015, I would say, like, was the age of big data. You know, everyone was collecting data. They were building data lakes. Um, they were getting all of their <laughs> yes. data strategy. In it order. was so so funny when I heard that term for the first time. I was like, lake, what right? lake? <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a joke in the database community that it's actually a data swamp and not a lake. It's no one tending right. to it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like when you just throw everything in there and like just rots. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have no idea. Yeah. Um, but people have spent a lot of time and effort in getting their data together. Um, and then the last few years have been spent on a lot of pilots of ML technologies. Oh, can I you know, build a chatbot? Can I use ML for um, churn prediction, the example that you were mentioning? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're seeing now is the companies that have successfully integrated ML into their products they're seeing advantages like multiple folds. For example, if you think about 
again, to pick on the Twitter case, if you think about all the places where models are being used, uh, whether it's a newsfeed, it's the ads, you know, um, it might be who to recommend uh, for following um, or what um, there's something called moments. So there's there's whole types of products that are enabled due to ML. And a lot of companies are realizing that. That's also the reason why a lot of startups are disrupting uh, traditional traditional industries. Um, to give you an example, in the lending industry, there are a host of small startups that are using alternative data sources and machine learning to make better decisions about lending that have traditionally been made. So right now, we're seeing the amazing potential of ML. And the reason why we're going to see an explosion in production ML and monitoring is that the larger companies realize, oh, wow, in order to stay competitive, um, I need to be inserting ML into this, that, and the other. Um, so let me figure out how to do that. And that's why we're going to see it, anything that you touch in the future will be intelligent mm -hmm. um, and it will be powered by these production ML processes. So in a nutshell, the competitive pressure has caught on. It took yes. some time to build the momentum, but now you either, <laughs> this can be a quote, like you either ML or die. <laughs> you know, that's, yes, oh, I like that. pretty much it, right? Like, um, it's kind of like the whole story of electricity that Andrew Nye quotes mm -hmm. that like AI is the new electricity, like a hundred years ago, you know, how many businesses had electricity? Now, now, can you name even one business anywhere in the world doing anything that doesn't use electricity? No. Right. Maybe right. like some shamans in the middle of Brazil. But that's not really a business. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so with, with that exciting future dawning upon us, um, mm -hmm. a very interesting philosophical somewhat question I have for you is, what should our listeners look into to be best prepared? Because like with, with this kind of, change radical drastic change happening and all mm -hmm. these tools flying into your face and all these different mm -hmm. concepts machine learning algorithms there's so much happening in the data science space and machine learning space mm -hmm. people get lost i get lost sometimes i don't know what, yeah. what to create a new course about 100 yeah so what what are your thoughts is there any guidance or advice you mm -hmm. can provide to those listening on how they can you know what can they do that's going to be best for their careers in the next three five years Ooh, that's <laughs> a tough one. Um, I know, that's, a tough yeah, question. that's a tough one. Um, I'll throw out my ideas. Um, I think that there are two things one can do as a data scientist. Um, and these are just very practical, tactical things. One is either to develop domain expertise on in a certain area or a certain kind of data, whether it's in banking, you know, these are the kind of data sets and here are the tools and techniques that are most helpful in the banking industry mm -hmm. and sort of specialize there. Um, the other one is what I mentioned before, which is incorporate more software engineering mm -hmm. um, into your data science practice, mm -hmm. because um, I think that modeling, while important, is going to be limited by your ability to integrate those models into products. Mm. So if you come into an org and you say, all right, I don't just do data science, but, but I understand what it's going to take for you to really deploy my work widely. So here's what I can do to help you become successful. Mm. 
That's I think true. that's very powerful. And it doesn't mean that you will have to be the one deploying those mm -hmm. or doing the software engineering. It just means that you will have that perspective that you can develop your models in a way that they're deployable or you can talk yep. to the software engineering teams and help them, you know, guide them, coach them. It's like a whole new skill set that you bring to the table. It doesn't mean you have to be the one coding those models into products. It just means like yep. you have that capacity to guide the organization in the right direction. 100%. And that's where I think tools such as Verda or others can help is data scientists still stay data scientists, but they have an understanding of what it takes to deploy it. Mm. So while infrastructure like Verda can do that, they still need an understanding of like, okay, once I built the model, here are all the things that have to happen before it hits the customer. Mm -hmm. So let me let me understand that. Let me speak that language. True. And I, if with your permission, I'll add one more of what you yeah. said before. Actually, um, you know what the top uh, tier data science teams are investing into, and I really like that you said the you know getting uh, product buy-in and essentially let's sum it up as uh, soft skills. I think that's going to mm -hmm. be super important. Like, what what are your thoughts? Soft skills yeah. can still be important in the future? Oh, very much so. Uh, I think very much so. You can write code in isolation, but like if you want it to have impact, then those soft skills are going to get you there. Fantastic. Totally, totally. All right. So um, domain expertise in a certain area, incorporate software engineer skills and look at your soft skills. Um, on that note, Manasi, so happy. Yeah. Great chat. It was amazing having you on the show. Um, Likewise, Be yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thank it's you. been a good one. Um, before before you go though, uh, where's uh, where are some of the best places for our listeners to catch you to learn more about uh, Verita and you know your career, maybe get in touch with your team and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So a few different ways. Um, on Twitter, I am at the data serial. D-A-T-A-C-E-R-E-A-L. Interesting. Um, I, I got to know the story behind that. <laughs> I like cereal and I like data. So. Nice. And it was available. <laughs> Why not? Yes, exactly. Um, like a lot of decisions in life, it's like, you know, domains. Um, and so that's me. Also, you can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm Manasi Vartak on LinkedIn. Um, our website is www.verda.ai. Um, we post Medium articles there. There's also a careers page and um, we are in beta. And if you would like to try out our product just on that little chat bot at the bottom, mention that you listen to this podcast and we will make sure to get you a code right away. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Manasi. Super, super Thank exciting you. chat. And, you know, I hope to catch up sometime soon. Good luck with, with uh, Vert. I'm sure it's going to be a blast. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, for tuning into the Super Data Science podcast today. And I hope you enjoyed our chat with Manasi and, of course, all the amazing insights she shared about the world of models in data science and where we're going in this space. I've got some exciting additional news for you. We chatted with Manasi after the podcast, and it's quite likely that she'll be joining us as a panelist for Data Science Go 2019. So if you're coming to Data Science Go, you'll get to meet her there. If, you have, if you're not coming, if you haven't got your tickets yet, then you can get them at www.datasciencego.com. Don't miss out on meeting Manasi and many other exciting speakers, panelists, and attendees. We're going to have about 600 to 800 data scientists attending this year. 
And as usual, you can get all the show notes for this episode at www.superdayscience.com slash 267. That's superdayscience.com slash 267. There you can get a transcript for this episode, any materials that were mentioned, plus the URLs to Manasi's LinkedIn, Twitter, um, to verita.ai, where don't forget, you can enter, um, talk to the chatbot and tell the chatbot, what a crazy world we live in, right? You can, <laughs> you can talk to a chatbot and tell the chatbot that you listen to the Super Data Science podcast and they will uh, prioritize you in the beta testing participants so you can get early access to verta.ai and test it out all for yourself and see how that can impact your career. On that note, hope you had fun. If you know anybody in the space of data science who's interested in data modeling or is struggling with some of the problems that we identified on this podcast and that could learn something from this episode, make sure to send them this episode. Just forward it to them. Spread the love. It's absolutely free on all social, um, on all podcasting mediums. You can find it on SoundCloud. You can find it on iTunes, on Stitcher. You can find it on Super Data Science, wherever you like. And uh, I'm sure there's lots of people out there that can benefit from these insights. And once again, on that note, thanks so much for being here. Can't wait to see you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.